0: Amen. The songs remind us today of our God's great power, right? He is our mighty fortress, and because we go in the name of Jesus, we know that nothing will prevail against our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we put off fear, and we go with confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the name of Jesus. Now, it's all good and happy to say those things, right? Amen, right? Proclaim the name of Christ. But it can be easy to become blind to the ways that fear of people can begin to creep in to the decisions we make and the reasons we do things and how we live and even why we go to church and how we conduct ourselves at church and our relationships outside of church. Fear of man, fear of people creeps in easily into these places. Now the reason I talk a little bit about fear of man even in entering into the sermon is because I think Luke highlights for us this the rub between a proper fear and reverence for the Lord and the fear of man that can creep into our thinking. Just notice the, the thread of fear, or and I want to use that in the terms of respect. We're not talking about fear as in terror, we're talking about fear as in reverence or respect for something. That thread began last week when we studied the story about Ananias and Sapphira, and you remember our theme was that it's important for us to respect the presence of God's Spirit among us. And... We saw how when Ananias and Sapphira did not do that, but chose to reject the Lord and lie to the Holy Spirit, they weren't fulfilling their purpose on earth. And so in God's loving discipline, he took them home to be with him. And that that passage in verse 11 ends with this great fear that came upon the church. Not terror, but respect for God's presence among them. That thread continues in today's text. Just look at Acts chapter 5 and follow along, as I point out, just a few key ideas that we'll see as a thread that weaves us all together. Notice in verse 13, how even the unbelievers, the outsiders of the church, begin to esteem the people highly. That's a, that's a, a, a word rooted in this idea of worship or exalted. They were looking up to The work of God among God's people. They respected what God was doing. Verse 17, we notice it again. It says that the high priest and the Sadducees were filled with indignation. That word is actually jealousy. They saw the people respecting God's work in the church and they were jealous because it meant loss of respect for them. Verse 26. When they go to arrest the apostles, they do it kind of secretly, silently, without violence. Why? Because they feared the people. Notice then in verse 29. When Peter and the apostles are maybe tempted to fear the Sanhedrin, and what will happen to them? What does Luke point out to us? They fear God. They obey God rather than men. Down in verse 32. Excuse me, verse 31, Jesus is called the prince, the preeminent one. That has to do with the highest, the one do the highest amount of respect, the preeminent one. And then in verse 32, those who have God's spirit do what? They obey Him. They fear the Lord. They respect Him. They please Him. This thread continues in the next section. Even when Gamaliel in the Sanhedrin stands up and proposes to them this idea, he references two former uh, people that gathered a following for themselves, rebels that gathered a following. And it's interesting, in verse 37 and 36, he points out that all who obeyed them, followed them, feared these leaders. When the leader died, the whole movement kind of died out as well. And so this thread of fear and respect and obedience continues through this whole account. And what it teaches us is as we understand, as we grow in a respect for God's presence among us, what it leads us to is not only just obedience to God, in this gratitude for what He's done in Christ and giving us His Spirit, we say, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you want, but particularly to accomplish his mission by proclaiming salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. This is not just general obedience that we witness in chapter 5. This is particular obedience to proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. And they do it because of their reverence for God. What can man do to us? It's almost as if Peter and the apostles are saying, we believe in God and so we must Proclaim His name. So as we think about our theme today, we're thinking about it this same way. Friends, you and I are to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name by the powerful presence of God's Spirit. We could even maybe improve on that a little bit by saying it this way. We show our respect for God. We show our reverence for God by Proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. You see, this is what happens in this text as this great contrast is built between the high priests and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the apostles. What we notice first in verses 12 through 16 is that as we see the Spirit at work in the church, we we should grow in our reverence for God. As we see God's Spirit moving among God's people, bringing change, bringing growth, our respect for God ought to grow right along with that. And this is exactly what's happening in verses 12 through 6. God is at work. Notice the descriptions of God's work, beginning in verse 12. Luke describes that it's through the hands of the apostles that many signs and wonders were done. Do you notice the the passive description there? Through their hands, signs and wonders were done. It implies that someone else is doing the signs and wonders. It's simply just through them. Well, who's the one doing these signs and wonders? God's Spirit accomplishing these things. Now, this was predicted that God would do this through the apostles as part of confirming God's word in this time where Christ has ascended to his throne in heaven and the apostles are to teach and preach the word of Christ. It was clear that those who had witnessed Christ's resurrection, the apostles, would do signs and wonders to confirm the word. As the church continues and the apostles die and pass away, those signs and wonders cease. There's no need for them any longer. We have the written word of God. And so the Spirit is doing these signs and wonders among the people. But there's something else we notice in verse 12, a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Some of your Bibles may say Solomon's portico or some, Solomon's colonnade, I think, is another one that's mentioned. It's an area just outside the temple, actually attached to the temple. It was considered part of the temple grounds. It's a large area where the church had begun to gather regularly. If you want to talk about a miracle, Luke says that these 5,000-plus believers were all in one accord. They were unified. How does that happen? Like among 5,000-plus believers that just met each other days ago as pilgrims from all over. Just all they have in common is they've trusted in Christ. And there's unity. There's another miracle of the Holy Spirit right there in verse 12. And so they're gathering and they're, they're worshiping the Lord together and they're preaching salvation in Jesus' name. Now there's something interesting in verse 13. It says, none of the rest dared join them. There's another kind of respect going on here. Those looking on the believers, worshiping God as they see God's power at work, there was respect that said, boy, I'm not, I'm not going to take this lightly. I'm not just jumping on the bandwagon here. There were no fakers in the early church because they respected the power of God. I think that's part of the result of what they saw with Ananias and Sapphira this work of god in the church is to be respected this is not just some club to to join for a while this is not some political fad going on here no the real power of god is at work and so if you're going to think about joining them you better take it seriously so they didn't dare joining that doesn't mean that the church wasn't growing Because as you notice, verse 13, the people esteemed them highly. There is respect for God's work in the church. That word esteemed is like to, to, to magnify or to lift up high. So these people looked up to the believers. And it was interesting because in verse 14, more and more believers were coming to faith in Christ. So what was clear here, there was such a respect for God that this wasn't just some passing fad where people would say, well, yeah, I'll I'll jump in and try it out. No, it was life-altering based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. These people knew that if they they joined this group of believers, they were were in a sense going to be ostracized from their Jewish community. Maybe even from their families. See, this was a life-altering decision. And in respect for God, they esteemed the believers highly and their church was still growing. God was at work. Multitudes of both men and women were coming to Christ in faith, regardless of the cost. They were ready to follow and to live for Jesus. Verses... 15 and 16 continue this description of the miracles that God was doing through the apostles, healings of many people. And so word began to spread and people gathered in Jerusalem and God was at work in powerful ways, healing those who were sick and exercising demons from those who were oppressed. And again, all of this was part of this transition period in the early church to show the truth of the word that these apostles were preaching. This is truly the word of God. Believe in Jesus as Savior, as the Spirit was at work among them. Friends, as we see the Spirit of God at work in the church, we grow in our reverence for God. The work of the Spirit is what draws people to the church not not gimmicks or shows or anything like that it's the work of the spirit that grows our reverence for god i was able to get together with two dear saints recently who both have serious health issues going on we spent the evening together and just talking and sharing and the conversation kept cycling back around to God's blessing in their lives. We just found ourselves returning to that theme. Hasn't God been good? Yes, He has. Let me tell you something He did the other day, and they'd share. That came away from our time together just rejoicing in the work of God's Spirit in those two saints. That in the midst of their hardship, they're rejoicing in the kindness of God. That's a God thing. (laughs) Praise God for that. And as we see that kind of thing in the lives of one another, as we see God at work, we turn our eyes up to the Lord and say, oh, thank you, Lord. You are at work in your people. We worship you and we revere your power. You see, the Spirit is at work today, and it's important as believers that we look for that. When you see tender hearts among God's people, when you see a brother or sister read the Scriptures and tenderly say, Oh, that's what I need to do. Lord, I submit to your Word. You're watching the Spirit at work in someone's life. When you see confession of sin, uh, that without prompting, someone comes forward to you and says, you know what, I, I need to talk to you about something. I've sinned. I've talked to the Lord and I know He's forgiven me. Would you forgive me for what I've done? You're watching God's Spirit at work the -the behind-the-scenes service, the things that we don't see, the words of encouragement that God spreads among His people to administer His comfort through the saints, the patience with difficulty that you see your brothers and sisters endure hardship with their eyes fixed on the Lord, the empathy for needs, the compassion to reach out, prayer with one another, joy despite difficulty, faith over fear. These are all evidences of God's work at at work in His people. And when we see these things, we lift our eyes to heaven and we respect God's power. We fear the reality of Him among us at work. What a privilege. To be His people. And so friends, I encourage you to grow in your reverence for God as you see Him at work. This is indeed what ought to happen in the life of the church. This is not some club. This is not some just fad. that You know, I'll try this for a while and see if it makes my life more comfortable. This is life altering that we who have trusted in Christ have then been given God's Spirit so that we can participate in God's mission. Everything changes when you become a member of God's universal church. And then we grow in reverence for what we see of God inside His church. See, Church growth is not about gimmicks or style or passing fads or popularity or things like this. No, what makes the church magnetic is the work of God's Spirit here. As people see the glory of God at work here, they will take church seriously. This isn't some cool-looking club. It's ground zero for the presence and work of God And so it attracts those who are being drawn by the Holy Spirit. It attracts those who have been converted to faith in Christ and who want to draw near to God and participate in what God is doing. That's what church is. And so as you see God's Spirit at work, grow in your reverence for God. But as we see in the text, sometimes there comes resistance to this kind of thing. We'll see number two today, that as you meet resistance, keep proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. This is our mission, that the world may know that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. And so as we meet that resistance, we keep our eyes on our task. Keep proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. Now track along with the story here beginning in verse 17 as there's this growing contrast between the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the apostles and fear of man over here and fear of God with the apostles. So as this powerful work is going on and the people respect the apostles, the high priest needs to bring this to a stop, verse 17. They're filled with indignation or jealousy. The people are beginning to respect and follow the church and the Lord rather than the high priests. And so in verse 18, they arrest the apostles and throw them in prison, resisting the work of God. But God is greater. Verse 18 and 19, as they're in prison, an angel of the Lord comes and looses their chains and the doors and the apostles are set free with this instruction in verse 20. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And of course, we understand the gospel, know that that life refers to life in the name of Jesus Christ, salvation from sins and life everlasting to those who trust in Jesus. And so God, through this angel, releases them from prison and calls them to go right back to the temple where they were arrested and to keep preaching salvation. And so verse 21, that's exactly what they do. The morning comes, they go to the temple, and they start teaching again. At the same time, meanwhile, you could say in verse 21, and I want you to catch just with a a bit of a smile here, the irony that begins just dripping from Luke's words here, because as the apostles, by God's power, are in the temple preaching, The Sanhedrin, the high priests, and the Sadducees, the the ruling authority over Jerusalem and and Judea under Roman power, they gather to to kind of impose their power. Like, we're going to show these apostles who's who here. While they're gathering, the apostles are still preaching Christ in the temple. Verse 22 they call to have the apostles brought and it's just just hilarious right the officers go to the prison oh this is strange nobody's here verse 23 they find that the guards are still standing outside the prison cells doors shut and locked guarding empty cells some power and the apostles are out preaching the name of Christ in the temple. They don't know where they are. In fact, we find out in verse 24, they wonder about what's happening, how this could be, what's going to happen of this. They have no idea what's going on. Someone, verse 25, has to come and tell them, um, actually, they're preaching in the temple. Oh, well, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I don't know who it was that told them they were there, but just some person, you know. These rulers, the high priests and the Sanhedrin, in all their power are told by some commoner, um, actually, they're, they're preaching again in the temple. Now, there's no humility here. Oh, that they would have paused at that moment and thought, maybe God is at work among them. That they got out of prison and are still preaching in the temple without us even knowing. But no, they move right to arrest. And I think Luke's helps us see the reason that there's no pause to reflect on God's work here because, verse 26, they arrest them quietly without violence. It's kind of this like, you need to come with us, arm around the shoulder, and they walk them off the temple grounds because they fear the people. All they want is the respect and power that comes from ruling the people. There's no fear of God. And so they've got to keep up appearances. They've got to keep the crowds in favor of them. And they have no care for what God thinks or what God is doing. And so the apostles are brought, verse 27, before the council. And the high priest asks them with this great authority, he asks them this rhetorical question Did I not tell you to no longer speak in this name? The idea is, you know, kind of like how, of course, he told them, how dare you go against my instructions? You can tell his fear, the end of verse 28. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. What's he afraid of? His reputation. He's scared the people are going to find out that indeed they did put Jesus to death. And now this one with whom is attached this power of healing, the Lord Jesus Christ, the people will find out they put Him to death. They won't respect them any longer. That's what he's afraid of. No fear of God here. Fear of man. He's worshiping his own reputation. And you see the contrast in verse 29. Peter and the other apostles answer, we ought to obey God rather than men. Peter's like, hey, it really doesn't matter what the people think here. We revere God and we must do what he wants us to do. We must Proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. See, Peter and the apostles revered God and His power. It didn't matter what the high priest threatened to do. It didn't matter what the Sanhedrin would do to them. They served the living God, and they trusted in His name. Verse 30 and 31, I, I love this, right? So the high priest. I mean, just picture this. Here's the high priest in all his pomp and power with the Sanhedrin around him, threatening Peter and the apostles for, for preaching in Jesus' name. Not only does Peter say, we fear God, not men, then he preaches the gospel to him. I love it. In verses 30 and 31. He says, the God of our fathers. So he draws the high priest in. This is your God too. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God, has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What a gospel presentation right there. We just... Two short verses, and Peter lays it all out for him. You murdered Jesus, but there's forgiveness of sins because God raised this Jesus up and has made Him Lord and Savior. And if you repent, He'll give you forgiveness of sins. Your murderous intent can be washed away. Verse 32, Peter comes back to his mission. We are his witnesses. And also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. There that thread of fear and obedience comes up again. Peter knows the whole reason he's able to do this before the high priest is not just his own personal skill in sharing the gospel or his own personal strength here. No, no, no. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus and the Father send the Spirit after Jesus' ascension? To bear witness that Jesus is God's Savior, That's the work of the Spirit. And so Peter's boldness here is actually the very work of the Holy Spirit witnessing to the Sanhedrin that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. And it's interesting because he calls believers those who obey Him. When a person trusts in Christ as Savior... One of the things that results is a changed life because they recognize that Jesus is the exalted Savior. He's preeminent. That's kind of what that word prince means here. And so in reverence for the one who gave his son for me and then gave his spirit to me, we say, yes, Lord, I'll obey you. That's what believers do. We obey the Lord. That doesn't mean we don't have times where we fall short and we fail. We fail. But We keep repenting. We keep turning back to Him. We keep saying, yes, Lord, what you've done for me, I am yours. I'll do whatever you ask. I'll do whatever would please you. Our lives revolve around that goal and specifically to witness to the fact that Jesus is the Savior God sent. As you meet resistance, keep proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. This is what it means to be a Christian. We have believed in Jesus' work, His death and resurrection. We accept Jesus as Savior in our lives and recognize then that He is preeminent in our lives. As the one who gave His life for us, we live that we might live no longer for ourselves but for Him who died for us and rose again. Everything is about Him. And so those who believe also obey because they fear God, not men. I wonder, have you trusted in Christ as Savior? Have you been freed of fear of man in your life? To trust in Jesus and grow in your reverence for God that says, Oh, because you gave me Jesus, I will do anything for you. This obedience particularly is focused on proclaiming the good news, not just Christian preferences. The Lord brought to my mind as I was studying this, looking back, sorry to bring up bad memories here, but looking back to the period of COVID in our lives. And I was looking back to all the, all the thinking and, and working we did during that time to figure out church and work through what, what would happen and how we would handle things. and I'm thankful for God's help during that time. But as I was thinking back on that and, and our efforts and so forth, I began to wonder if, if maybe I was more up in arms about my potential comforts being taken away than I was passionate about the task of proclaiming the good news no matter the cost. We talked and wrestled about the removing of our so-called rights and privileges. But I wonder, if I had been as passionate about the proclamation of the gospel, how would things have looked differently? Are we strategizing and talking and discussing and focused on our mission to proclaim the name of Christ as passionately as we are about preserving our comforts? Friends, I think it's right for us in the church to lay down our rights and privileges at the feet of Jesus. Our rights before Christ were to hang as murderers on the cross. That's our right. But God didn't give us that right. No, instead, He blessed us with His Son. And then those who have trusted in Christ are given His Spirit. And so it's not about our rights and privileges. It's about the way God has blessed us. And so then with gratitude at the kindness of God, we we lay it all at the feet of Jesus and say, Yes, Lord, I'm ready to sacrifice whatever I need to sacrifice to proclaim the name of Christ so that people around me would know and hear the good news. So that the world would know that Jesus is the Savior, even if it means persecution and death. I'm ready. Because Jesus gave His life for me. So I encourage you first to know the good news. To be aware of that understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. So that you'd be prepared to share with someone the bad news their accountability to God, and because of their sin against God, eternal death. But but the good news that God in love sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, paying in full the penalty for our sin, rising from the grave as victor over sin and death, exalted to the Father's right hand as Savior of the world. But then also that response to repent and believe in Jesus. Just like Peter calls the high priest to do right here in Acts 5:31. As you meet resistance, keep proclaiming salvation in Jesus name. We see thirdly in the text today We can rejoice that God chose us to participate in His unstoppable mission. God chose us to participate in His unstoppable mission. The irony continues in this text as we get a sneak peek into the discussions of the Sanhedrin. They actually ask the the apostles to step away. We don't know exactly how we get clued into this conversation Possible Luke was there. It is interesting. Gamaliel is the one who speaks for a while. And we find out later in the book of Acts that Gamaliel was Saul's teacher, Saul who became the Apostle Paul. It's very possible that this account is in the book of Acts by Paul's testimony as he looked back and remembered what he saw and watched on this day. We don't know. It's a guess. But it's interesting. So, verse 33, they hear this, and the Sanhedrin is furious, and they plot to kill them. Think about this for a second. They're so angry that they've been accused of murdering Jesus. They're so fearful about their reputation, they might be known as murderers, that they plot to kill the apostles. Do you see the blindness there? Gamaliel stands up in verse 34. He's held in respect. There's that word again. They they respect Gamaliel. They hold him in esteem. But just notice again the sadness of this because Peter, through the witness of the Holy Spirit, has just shared the gospel with the Sanhedrin, but they respect Gamaliel, not the Holy Spirit. So they listen to Gamaliel, and he begins to take them through some history. He reminds them of two men who rose up in recent history in, in Judea, and we don't know exactly all the details of these men in history. There's some record of them, maybe some claim to, to be able to overthrow Rome and, and, and save Israel or something like that, some, you know, Savior, Messiah sort of complex or whatever, and And each of these men actually gained a following for a time. And you notice again in 36 and 37, that little phrase, those people obeyed him. They followed, they feared these these leaders, respect. But as soon as those men died, the the movement died away. And so Gamaliel continues explaining to them, and, and the conclusion of his logic comes in verse 38. Just like these former men who gained a following for a time, if this work is of men, it will die out. But verse 39, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. Actually, he's right on. He says, you might even be found to be fighting against God if you resist this movement. Now, I don't think Gamaliel believes that the apostles all are a movement of God, this is just a, a reminder of God's sovereignty, and if this is a thing of man, it will die out, and if it's of God, it will continue. Interestingly, they're so blind to the reality here. Gamaliel points things out that they could have seen already. That the leader of this movement, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not dead, but is alive. And so... The mission will not fade away and die. Furthermore, that God is at work in the church, producing these miracles that were intended for Israel to know and respond and believe that Jesus is the Christ, and yet they're still rejecting. So they sort of listen to Gamaliel in verse 40. They. They don't just let the apostles go. They call them in and have them beaten. This was probably 39 lashes. Jesus lashing was through Romans, so it may have been more. The Jews stepped theirs back, one less than 40, so as not to break the Old Testament law. And so they probably got 39 lashes, all 12 apostles. And so bloodied, and torn, and bruised, and beaten, we hear them in verse 41. They depart from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. As the Sanhedrin is worried about their reputation as murderers and seek to murder the apostles, The apostles don't care about their reputation. They say, fine, we will bear shame for the name of Christ. And beaten and bloodied, they leave the council rejoicing that God's chosen them to participate in this unstoppable mission because Jesus is alive and God is at work. And the work of God through his church cannot be stopped A promise right from the mouth of Jesus. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the apostles are just overjoyed to be able to participate in this, even if it means torture in this life. Because their time on earth, like that of every believer, is about one thing. Proclaiming the name of Christ until God removes us from this earth and takes us to our true home where we will be with Him forevermore. And so, verse 42, they go right back to what they were doing. <laughs> Maybe they even ramp it up a bit here. It says, daily, daily in the temple and in houses, they're gathering to preach Christ. <laughs> I mean, I, I might have considered like, stepping back a little bit here well, guys, we could consider every other week, maybe. Uh, they don't hide. It's right there in the temple, where everyone can see Him, they're gathering and in homes, proclaiming the name of Christ, preaching and teaching Jesus as the Messiah. This is Christ in our English translation. It's the word Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, God's Savior. Everything is about that. Rejoice that God has chosen you to participate in His unstoppable mission. Friends, the mission of God is indeed unstoppable. Gamaliel makes a wise point here, and it's proof that Christianity is of God, that it has not faded or died these 2,000 years since Christ's time on the earth. In fact, it has thrived and flourished even amidst persecution globally Against all odds against persecution itself God builds his church All the other saviors of history are no longer alive Pick a religion its savior or god or leader is dead Only Jesus remains alive, having risen from the grave, having conquered our sin and death, and lives forevermore. And in the hands of our Savior, the mission of God is secure and unstoppable. And what a privilege to have been chosen by God to participate in that. He wins, and we're on His team. Rejoice that you've been chosen by God to participate, but not just to participate. Think for a moment about the joy that comes from this. Who doesn't want joy? To some degree, I think it's one of the things that every human being, whether they know the Lord or not, is after. Joy. But having been called to the mission of God, we know exactly where that joy comes from. Did Jesus not tell his disciples exactly how this would work in John fifteen nine 9-11? When Jesus said, As the Father loves me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. God brought us into relationship with Him. The same loving relationship that the Father and the Son have together, we've been brought into that by the presence of God's Spirit in our lives. We are loved. And in response to that love, like Jesus does, He said, Father, you love me, so I will keep your commands. We, too, thrive in God's love by saying to the Lord, Yes, Lord, I'll keep your commands. But not only does the Spirit bring us into this perfect love of the Father and the Son, the Spirit empowers us to do everything God has called us to do. Talk about a good deal. And so joy is found in saying yes to God. In every little decision and plan and thought, it's just pleasing Him. And then as He does that, as He works that in us, we, we look back on the work of God in our lives, and we say, oh, thank you, Lord. You're here, and you're present, and you're helping. I rejoice. I rejoice. And decision by decision, step by step, we find joy in God's work in and through us. That's true joy. And so, I encourage you, Show your reverence for the Spirit of God's power and presence in your life by proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name, leaning on His help, rejoicing in His work. The Almighty God, the all-knowing God, is now in you because of Christ. And He's in you so that you can accomplish God's purpose for you. To proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. We do not fear mankind. We revere God among us, in us, and helping us to fulfill our singular purpose. To glorify God by proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the work of Your Spirit among the apostles. We know these men. We've read about them through the Gospels. We know that as we read this testimony of their boldness before the Sanhedrin, we're not seeing them. We're seeing your Spirit at work in them, and we praise you for it. What a joy to see your power at work. And so, Father, we confess to you we want to be used by you here in this congregation. We know that those who have trusted in Christ indeed have your spirit in them, here, now, present, helping, calming our fears, growing our faith, turning our eyes to you. And so we yield. We submit to the preeminent Christ who gave his life for us that we might live for him. We yield to the power of your Spirit in us, that through us you might make known Jesus as Savior in this place and in Grimes and in Des Moines and in Iowa and across the nation and across the globe. Magnify your name. We love you and we submit to you. In the name of Christ and by your Spirit, amen.